Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Uh, we have been talking a lot about how this year has been better for stock pickers because there is more divergence between shares and it's less of a macro story and moving uh, more towards specific uh, company stories. Mark Travis knows this uh, as well as anyone, President Chief Executive Officer of Intrepid Capital Funds with uh, nearly $1 billion under management based in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, Mark, you know, I'm wondering, I was looking through some of your top picks and the one that really caught my eye was Lucate. Because this firm is a an interesting bet on the boutique Jeffries, uh, which is at the heart of trading, and a lot of people think of as a bellwether for the rest of Wall Street since they report earlier. Given the fact that we are seeing lower trading results out of some of the banks, does that weigh on your decision to sell or buy Lucadia? Well, Lisa, it's a great example of a value-laden security for us at Intrepid Capital. When we bought it in the high teens, it was at a discount to uh, Tangible Book. And as you're aware, um, Jefferies is a material part of that, 50% of it. And it had been knocked down by fixed income trading uh, at Jefferies. And um, also national beef, the spreads were tight between, um, you know, cost of cattle and what they could sell them for. That's since widened out. And, and um, Jefferies has also reported improved fixed income trading. Um, so, you know, we've done well in the time we've had it. I've followed Lucadia, frankly, since it was run by um, Mr. Cummings and Steinberg back in the day. And it's really a kind of, as some people refer to as a mini uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which I've also been a shareholder, fortunately, for a long period of time. So um, They used to own a winery, too, I believe, and you used yeah. to get a discount, I believe, if you were a stockholder. I mean, there, if the more you uh, peel the onion, Pim, the more you find that uh, Lucadia owns. Um, as you know, it's got oil and gas, it's got timber, it's got auto dealerships, it's got, um, you know, on and on. So... Um, I think in a in a world where uh, there's very few mispriced securities, I think it's not unreasonably priced even at this point in the you know twenty six or seven dollar range. And um, you know I think if if Mr. Hadler continues to work his magic at 
uh, Jeffries, I think we'll see an improved share price, uh, not to mention the other uh, subcomponent parts that'll uh, hopefully do well in addition to that. So, Mark, I want to ask you about one particular company that uh, you want to focus on. This is Sintel. And the reason I want to do this is because I don't know whether you've obviously, I'm sure, paid attention to the back and forth between financial technology and the ability to test certain systems and so on. They've got a big market in banking, capital markets, as well as cards and payments. I also note that there's a new chief executive coming into Bank of New York Mellon, who was formerly the chief executive at Visa. So these kinds of industries are no longer... Uh, strictly banks or, or strictly payment systems. I wonder if you could talk about Sintel and how that caught your attention. Well, I think that their three biggest customers are Amex, State Street, and um, FedEx. And the way we became involved, I believe, PIM, is they pre-announced a revenue decline. They pre-announced maybe $50 million off the top, and it knocked the shares down. But I think it was really driven by Costco firing Amex and Amex pulling back the throttle on discretionary IT spending. Um, management has bought a big slug of, slug of shares. They owned a significant part of it already. I think the H1 visa issue with Trump now and the executive office is somewhat of a problematic for them. And um, some of the other parts of the you know technology space um, uh, there's concern that they haven't adapted to social media and whatever. But in the verticals where they are, I think they have very good margins, a lot of free cash flow. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a position we're comfortable to wait until that cash bubbles forth and you get a price in the mid-20s versus $16, $17 today. Mark, what's your time horizon when you're investing? Forever. <laughs> all right. I wish we all had forever. No, this is important because I feel like right now people are saying things are very highly valued. Uh, perhaps they are, but you can't invest in nothing if your time horizon's forever. Well, our, our premise, Lisa, at Intrepid Capital Funds has always been somewhat different as Pim can nod his head or shake his head one way or the other. But our, our premise is we want to find a material discount to a private market value using pretty high discount rates in our cash flow and or we want to do an asset valuation breakup, again, not making aggressive assumptions about the current market values. And can we find a discount? And if we can't find one, we'll default to cash. So the, the analogy I use for people is when prices are high, cash is high. When prices are low, cash is low. All right. So how high is your cash holding right now? It's about 20%. How does that compare to, say, a year ago? Well, I've had some inflows. I've had some bonds uh, called, and I've had some sh securities bought out. Um, it's higher, though. I'm guessing it's 6 to 8% higher than it was this time last year. And how has the distribution between bonds and stocks changed? Uh, stocks have come down. Bonds have held about the same. Really? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it government or is it uh, no, corporate? It's, or? it's always been kind of crossover paper. Um, All right, so like the double and triple B kind yeah, of? Yeah, we dig around. The most interesting piece of paper I own right now is a Primero Mining Convert. Um, it trades about 58 cents on the dollar. They have a single mine in Mexico, and the Mexicans go on strike until their wives tell them they have to go back to work, and then the bond will rally <laughs> and or whatever happens to gold prices. What's the biggest challenge right now to get people interested in stocks? We keep hearing about ETFs, index funds, low cost, so on. 
Are people still interested in actual companies like investing in businesses? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, Pam. Uh, we help sponsor, in fact, we sponsor a Bloomberg machine at the University of North Florida. They have what they call the Osprey Investment Group. And I go every year and listen to these kids talk, and they talk about the portfolio. And basically, they bring him in in September, October, and they manage the money until uh, April or May, and then they report. He did air quotes. Go on. Manage the money. Yeah, and they... Um, you know, but it's a very trading centric philosophy and a lot of e ETFs and what have you. And I, I made a comment to somebody recently. I said, I think they're probably bright kids, but I'd have to detrain them before I, they could work for me. So I, I wish there was a free lunch in the capital markets. I haven't been able to find one. And I don't think ETFs are ne necessarily a free lunch. Um, I want to find a good business at a good price and hang on to it as long as I can. I want to thanks very much for uh, coming in and spending time with us. As always, Mark Travis, he is the president, chief executive of Intrepid Capital, based in Jacksonville, Florida. I want to turn our attention now to uh, a topic of private equity, and joining us is Eric Hirsch. He is the vice chairman and the head of strategic initiatives for Hamilton Lane, assets under management, about $40 billion uh, based in Philadelphia. Eric, thank you for being with us here in the studio. I just want to cast your mind back to March 1st of this year. There were two IPOs that kind of priced on the same day, right? One was Hamilton Lane, and the other was Snap. The shares of Hamilton Lane are up 39% since that IPO, and the shares of Snap are down 12%. How did you guys do this? Well, I think this certainly shows the interest in the alternative side, uh, that uh, it's perhaps not as disappearing uh, as an asset class as, uh, as I think perhaps other businesses, but um, it was funny. We were uh, kind of watching them along the way, and Businesses have nothing to do with each other, and yet we were being kind of compared all the time because well, it's where investors want to put the exact their same money. day. Yeah. Well, I, I have to wonder. You know, last night uh, Calpers uh, board California uh, pension, the biggest pension plan, uh, public pension in the country, uh, said that it was exploring direct investing in order to get around paying private equity firms such high fees. Uh, do you hear a lot about? investors, clients hoping to reduce their fees? And do you expect this to be an ongoing pressure? I think, look, we live in a world where everyone wants to get more for less. And it's whether it's in the restaurant business or whether it's in the investment business or whether it's in the retail space, every client consumer is focused on trying to get the most value for their dollar. And the pension funds are not any different. Nobody loves to pay fees. But you got to step back and ask the question of, just because you don't like to pay fees, can you actually replicate the returns yourself with the resources you have at your disposal? That, I think, is the dilemma. I think we, see, we certainly hear a lot of institutions talking about trying to bypass this and bypass that. But then you sort of nod and say, okay, well, what does that mean for your own infrastructure, your own resources? And can you actually attract and get the people necessary to generate the performance that you're seeing across the asset class? 
Eric, you recently closed uh, a fund. This is the uh, Hamilton Lane Strategic Opportunities Fund designed to target private credit investments around the globe. Just tell us quickly about the fund and how much you raised and what was the target. Maybe that tells people something about demand. Yeah, so we raised a significant amount over the target. And I think what it reflects is the fact that private credit is really the booming part of our overall industry. I think when you see as a kind of a yield-starved overall environment, you're seeing investors just rapidly kind of redeploy public fixed income assets into private fixed income assets. And so the market on the private side, much more inefficient. Frankly, it's growing in scale. A lot of the practitioners, the banks, have been kind of knocked out of the business. And so you're seeing more of the kind of the private market GPs kind of stepping in to fill that void. And so, again, returns have been very good. The spreads against the public market have been very, very wide. And you're seeing people who are happy to trade liquidity today for higher returns. And yeah. I think that's been a real shift. So uh, the investment grade corporate bond market in the U.S. is about $5.9 trillion. The high yield public I'm talking about is $1.3 trillion. How big in context, just putting that into context, how big is this uh, private debt market and how big has it grown so it's How tiny. Much? In context of that, okay. tiny. Just like the entire private markets are tiny. We're looking at uh, fundraising statistics last year and total dollars deployed. If you look at the total dollars invested across the entire private equity landscape, it wasn't enough money deployed last year to go buy Apple. I mean, that's the thing that I think when you step back and put it in context of the private markets are small in any metric in comparison to the public markets, Although but they're growing. But they're growing and there's Fast. a lot of money chasing them. How concerned are you about these uh, securities becoming overvalued at this point? Yeah, so I think the private markets have gotten expensive like the rest of the markets have gotten expensive. I think if you put the private markets in context of the public side, there you actually see that the private is still trading at a material discount to the public markets, and it should. Again, a real lack of liquidity. And so, again, investors are kind of weighing that. I go back to my earlier comment. I think one of the things that's changing so much among the institutional investor is how they think and value and price liquidity. I think going into the financial crisis, most of them, frankly, overvalued liquidity. I think coming out of this, many of them are beginning to shift and say, we're pension. We're going to be around for decades, if not hundreds of years. We can probably start to take the chance of putting a lot more assets in an illiquid bucket and take the better longer-term returns for that. So the pendulum is swinging back to uh, accepting illiquidity. Eric Hirsch, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having uh, me. Eric Hirsch is Vice Chairman and Head of Strategic Initiatives at Hamilton Lane, which oversees about $40 billion and is based in Philadelphia. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, Netflix shares are soaring. Everyone's back in love with this uh, video streaming service. And yet that cash burn just 
always is amazing to Shira Ovide, who joins us now. Shira Ovide is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist who has been talking a lot about this over the past two days, uh, and I've been participating. So I thought, why don't we, uh, we just bring talk this. to each other? We about just talk to each other. Free we have cash flow. This, yeah, we we have the same conversation over and over again. Uh, Shira, so what's going on here, and why are stock investors dismissing the fact that this company just can't seem to make money? Well, look, everything is a trade-off, right? In in how you run a company, and Netflix has made a concerted strategy to try to grow its subscriber base as quickly as it possibly can in the U.S. and outside. And as a result of that, it is hemorrhaging cash. It haven't been free cash flow positive for three years. Uh, in the last 12 months, the free cash flow is negative $2.1 billion, which, as I pointed out in my Gadfly column yesterday, is uh, bigger than the negative free cash flow at Tesla, which is sort of notorious for uh, burning cash like there's no tomorrow. Sure. Uh, you know, we've heard this kind of story before. I, when you talk about subscriber growth, my mind turns back to AOL and <laughs> the idea that every month you would wait for those subscriber numbers. And if they were positive or exceeded estimates, then the stock moved higher, if not lower. And then eventually, of course, you sell the company to Time Warner. Uh, this has got a market cap of about $78 billion dollars, which I think equals maybe what cash Apple has on its balance sheet. Uh, this is sticky money, though. This is different than this is like its own cable system, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty sticky. I mean, look, you can I mean, cancel Netflix. a month. Yeah, it, it's or not what? very expensive, at least if you, you know, in, for most households in the U.S., that's not very expensive. And it is pretty sticky, although you can cancel Netflix at any time, right? It's it's not exactly a... Um, Good luck trying to do that if you've got a family. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, look, the fact is that a lot of Netflix subscribers really like it and feel like they get a lot of value out of that 10 bucks a month. Well, they get all the content, too. They get the House of Cards, Orange sure. is the New Black, right? I mean, these are all hit programs that you're not going to watch anywhere else. I, I'm not. I mean, look, Netflix has a hun more than 100 million subscribers uh, globally and 50 million in the United States. It's roughly half of the households in the United States with uh, broadband Internet access. So by any measure, what they have done to build this company is incredibly impressive. They've sort of changed the nature of entertainment. So, uh, you know, Pim was saying that they have a market cap of about $78 billion, which makes them a very expensive takeover target if someone were interested in that. However, you do have to wonder if a conglomerate like Amazon that has perhaps broader distribution and more diversified streams of revenue might do well to own a company like this rather than trying to go it alone and compete in the content game. Is there any talk of that? Uh, over the years, Netflix has definitely been the subject of takeover, speculation, rumors, wishful thinking, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Disney and Apple are among the companies that are often mentioned as potential acquirers of Netflix. But yeah, it is a $75 billion plus company. So with a takeover premium, that's $100 billion. Even for Apple, that's a very large acquisition. So it's no easy feat. And also, look, if you look at Amazon, that's a company that has sort of built a mini Netflix on its own without having to buy Netflix. And um, Apple and Facebook both have uh, web video ambitions of their own that they're doing in-house. So it's not impossible to sort of replicate Netflix or get close to replicating Netflix without buying Netflix. So Netflix expects to keep burning cash. What could they do that would change your mind about how damaging or not this is? 
well, I, I guess sustained subscriber growth would be helpful. And at some point, right, and I don't know when that is, um, they're going to have to start showing that operating leverage, right, That where that, that switch flips and they start they go from burning cash to generating cash. But until I see that actually happening, I think it's just worthwhile to keep reminding people this is not a strategy without risks. And if you look at the stock market, it's pricing in that Netflix is going to be totally fine. And I'm just saying, look, this is a this is a risky strategy where they're burning cash in order to grow. And maybe that'll turn out great or maybe it won't. I want to thank you very much, Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist when it comes to all things technology. And uh, I encourage you to read her latest column at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's uh, visit with our uh, congressional reporter, Laura Litvan. She joins us uh, from Washington. And Laura, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, A long night or a short night for uh, Senate Republicans? Well, last night was a long night for reporters trying to cover this. (laughs) But uh, I don't expect tonight will be a late night. No, I think they're trying to regroup. And the first thing that will happen today and the big moment will be when Senate Republicans have a caucus meeting at 2 p.m. and try to figure out what they're going to do next. And, um, yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot of feedback from McConnell from his rank and file. I'm sure that there will be. I mean, this is a huge loss for him. This is uh, really this is the first time ever that he's the leader of the Republicans while they're in a majority. And how much does this set back his agenda? It potentially uh, causes some loss of momentum for other issues. They really have in the Senate, other than confirming Neil Gorsuch, which was an a-plus accomplishment for the Republicans over President Trump, they have largely been simply doing confirmations of agencies and assistant secretaries and all kinds of positions after they moved from the cabinet and have not really been moving very much in uh, policy-wise. And uh, this, is a, this is what they spent half a year on in the House and the Senate. Uh, and now they're going to have to try to see if they have lost momentum on other issues like uh, the spending bills for next fiscal year, where they will need some bipartisan support. It might give Democrats a little more edge in those kind of talks over agency funding. And uh, there's also an effort by the Republicans to push through a big overhaul of the tax code. Now, is there some procedural issues that are affected by the fact that this does not look like it will pass? Because I understand that... uh, The president has 60 days from the time that he takes office, I believe, in order to, let's say, undo legislation or executive orders that were passed by a previous administration. That's not unusual. Well, that that time period, if you're talking about the Congressional Review Act, yes, uh, that that time period passed us in May. That's that's, what I mean. In other words, now they're going to have to put something together. uh, Yes. And this is. you know, turning away from the regulatory uh, agenda, which that related to, um, they what will happen with health care is this vote is likely to um, to fail to the, the vote they're going to turn to now is an alternative, which is simply to repeal Obamacare and then replace it in two years. And then what we anticipate will happen with health care is that we will move into kind of a bipartisan mode 
with Democrats to talk about things like cost-sharing subsidies for insurers on the Obamacare exchanges and other things that can get uh, support in both parties. Laura, how did this develop so quickly? Because there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of uh, game playing and and moving the needle in different directions. And and, uh, Mitch McConnell had quite a bit of money he could kind of play with to try to get uh, senators on board with him. And then all of a sudden, overnight, boom, two senators parted way together with McConnell, giving him uh, making it two votes short of the uh, majority that he needed to pass this bill. How did this develop so quickly? It it was a big surprise. In fact, the president had just finished a meeting probably about an hour before the two senators, Mike Lee and um, Jerry Moran, came out against the bill. Uh, He was meeting to talk with seven senators, including two members of the leadership, about strategy on the bill and about a path forward. Uh, Lindsey Graham had just told me and other reporters that he got off a cell phone with John McCain um, heading into a Senate vote where McCain, whose surgery had, had um, deprived McConnell of the votes to proceed right away uh, over the weekend. Uh, McCain was telling Graham, he said, that he was just itching to get back to Washington and be back here next week to resume things. No one was really expecting this. And what happened with the two senators, they announced right at the same time, and it had the feeling of a, what we would call a pairing, where the two of them had agreed to do this, Then neither of them had to be the bad guy who was the final death knell. And um, big surprise, enough so that at Bloomberg we have people who monitor social media. We had someone in Sydney, Australia, who was on duty who noticed their pair of tweets go out at the same time and alerted us right away, and we were – uh, writing stories for many hours after that. Now, in the in the prospect of of re- just repealing uh, the Affordable Care Act, what happens to it? Well, what what will happen is they will fail to get the votes to repeal it. We've widely expected only right. a small number will get the votes. So that so after all this, they're not even going to get some kind of uh, pyrrhic pyrrhic victory. Uh, it would appear on that front, no. Uh, we don't expect something to pass in the Senate. Uh, Paul Ryan, I think if he he put a vote like that to the House, there's some question maybe something like that could go through. But it will it'll effectively die, I believe, after this vote. It lets everybody be on record. Um, and then they will move on to something else, which will be something that might uh, get some more Democratic support. Laura Litvin, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I hope you get some sleep tonight. Laura Litvin, congressional reporter uh, for Bloomberg, who's been hard at work uh, burning the midnight oil to follow the quickly developing, uh, I mean, demise of this bill. Uh, truly uh, surprising. I woke up and, and was not um, was not expecting this. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, 
a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.